0: The Fred M. Cray interview edition of the Notorious OTV on the Sports Gambling Podcast Network is brought to you by Hall of Fame Bets, the sports betting research platform for parlays, player props, and game lines. Download the Hall of Fame Bets app or visit hofbets.com. Use code SGPN to get 50% off your first month and start making smarter bets today. We're also brought to you by Cut. Cut is a peer-to-peer social betting platform that's U.S.-based and legal in 40 states. Head to cut.com. That's K-U-T-T. Dot com and use promo code SGPN for a 10% deposit bonus. And we're also brought to you by the SGPN NFL Playoff Challenge, sponsored by Edge Boost. Free to enter, and $20,000 in Edge Boost deposit bonuses are up for grabs. Enter today at SportsGamingPodcast.com/slash NFL Playoff. <laughs> Welcome everybody to the Notorious OTB brought to you by the Sports Gambling Podcast Network and folks as always. It's all good baby baby. Uh, it was all a dream. We used to read Blood Horse Magazine. I've got my Cuban links yes, on. Yes Cuban B. And I'm your host Chase Essoms the Wolf of Oak I got ice all over my body looking like a snowman. Big rocks in the grill dancing like a slow jam.
1: My chain's so heavy and walking like an old man. Try me you
0: so usually this is the point in the show where I uh, go ahead and I, I, I do my musings. I talk about uh, every every just funny thought that goes through my head that no one else uh, probably thinks is funny. Uh, today, though, I'm going to skip the musings because I'm very excited uh, to have uh, this guest with me. I've been talking him up all week. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Fred M. Cray. Fred, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, for you, I feel like Fred, I'm getting
1: some street cred on your show.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's my goal is to someday be able to purvey street cred onto people. Uh, for folks who don't know, Fred is a former trial trial lawyer who uh, specialized in animal law and won the American Bar Association's coveted Excellence in the Advancement of Animal Law Award in 2016. And he's also the author of a fantastic book that I just finished, uh, Broken: The Suspicious Death of Ali Dar and the End of the Horse Racing. Golden Age. Uh, I think I might, might have bu- uh, butchered the subtitle there. That's my bad. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the show, Fred. Thanks. Um,
1: Did you like Fred, it?
0: A- oh, I loved it. I this, okay. let's get the fan- fanboy portion of this out of the way uh, early. Uh, I really enjoyed your uh, your book. I, I think a lot of the reason that I enjoyed it quite a bit was I've seen a lot of hit pieces on horse racing recently i say hit pieces we deserve what what we get sometimes of course but you know uh from like hbo sports or 60 minutes or everything it's
1: it's saw the like, 60 minutes
0: yeah it, it's it's hard to stomach some of the stuff and uh you can always tell that it comes from people also who aren't necessarily fans of the industry to begin with the one thing that really shines through with your book is i i can tell that you you are a a fan of horse racing uh do you mind talking about kind of you know how you fell in love with the sport
1: well, I was brought up near Atlantic City, and I did go to that track once. And I was too young to bet. But as I was walking around, I found two hundred dollars on the ground. <laughs> and my friend said, "Hey, man, you bet on, on the ground," and he came on came in to win. There you go. Uh, and then when I went to law school, I was in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I worked at the track as a uh clerk. And back then, it was all paper. You know, it was first two dollars and thirty-five cents. Second, you know. And you had to add it all up. It was much more difficult than it is now. And in, in Lincoln, Nebraska, the horses were, they say, they plow the fields in the afternoon and run at night. You know, it's a, a very different level of, of racing. But while sure. I was there, uh, I got involved in the backside of horse racing. I got to know all the, the the people you don't see and the people that really love the horses the most. You know, the trainers, the hot, hot walkers, the exercise riders, uh, the grooms, uh, and particularly the grooms. Um, and so I, you know, I, I got to know those people and, you know, I would get tips from them to bet and things like that. Uh, and I would get to know the horses there and, uh, you would get to know that. I think everyone knows that animals have different personalities, but so do horses, you know, there are friendly horses, there are mean horses, there are relaxed horses, there are nervous horses. Um, and, So that's where I was introduced to it, uh, was in Nebraska. And then in 1978, when I first started working as a lawyer, I went to see Aladar run in the Flamingo Stakes and then at the Florida Derby. And at that time, um, I was really, I would say, overwhelmed by being a trial lawyer. It was the kind of thing where uh, most people think of it as you know you you go to a law firm and you get trained for you know three years before you can even sit in court. For me, it was exactly the opposite. Uh, I uh, was I had passed the bar for a week. They gave me a file and said, "Okay, trial's Monday. We'll see you Monday." And this was on Friday, and I was yeah. like, "I you know I don't even know the different parts of a trial. I don't know how to ask questions." And I felt overwhelmed because I was very I I was very anxious about how to do it and whether I you know, people were paying you to go to court uh, and you got to know what you're doing. So it was during this time I went to watch Aladar run and I was really thinking about quitting and saying, you know what, this is too much for me. I can't handle it. Uh, And when I watched him run in those two races and watched his determination in the stretch, I really felt like it was a message to me that, you know, with determination, anything can work and because of that I had this connection to him that uh w- was more than just me watching him in the stand I felt like wow he was a friend I felt like we had grown up together even though none of that was true and I will say the only time I've ever felt that kind of feeling is you know I've picked up dogs on the street you know they yeah. running on the street I open my car door and they jump in and they get home and they sit on the couch and like, Hey, I'm here. And this is my place. And you love them from that moment. Uh, right. It's not a logical thing, but I felt that way about Aladar. And, uh, so that's how I got into horse racing and Aladar is a horse. I followed his triple crown races in tra- Travers. And then, you know, I kind of got subsumed into my job and it wasn't until, um, When I retired, I moved to Gainesville and I was practicing animal law that I decided I wanted to go down and see Dr. Fager's gravestone because Dr. Fager is a Florida horse. And he was the most fiery, to me, the most intense horse I'd ever watched. I never saw him in person.
0: So when
1: I went down to look at his gravestone, I went on a farm tour. And while we were on the farm tour, the lady was running the tour said you know uh, why are you on this tour what's your favorite horse and i said Alidar's is my favorite, favorite favorite horse and she said well you know there's a there's a lady who's driving the van the other van that was at calumet when alidar was hurt and i thought oh so i went to talk to her and she was not happy about it i think she felt like it would be better if the lady had never mentioned it but i said you know you were there when alidar got hurt uh Do you think J.T. Lundy was involved in it? J.T. Lundy was at that time the manager of the farm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so she said, well, he didn't do it, but he aligned it were her words. And I said, well, I'd really like to talk to you about this. And she said, no, I won't talk to you because I'm afraid for my life and my children's life. Wow. And I thought to myself, wow, it's over 30 years later and you're feeling like this? This is this is really something that gets my attention and my curiosity. So I went home, and I never did see Dr. Fager's grave then, but I did see it about six months ago. And that's another funny story about what happened when I did that. But anyway, um, I went and looked up all the things that pertained to Aladar, all the books. There have been books written about him, uh, Aladar, and a firm duel for the crown. Timothy Caps wrote a book called Aladar in, in a small series of, the, uh, books that were written on uh, famous horses. Uh, Lou Sadie wrote a book about the Aladar Affirmed uh, rivalry, and uh, Skip Hollingsworth w- wrote a book for uh, Texas Monthly. He wrote a, an article about the death of Aladar. After reading all that stuff, uh, I found out that there was there were trials uh, with the Night Watchman and the uh, J.T. Lundy and uh, his CFO, and as a lawyer, you know, I went and looked at. I went to. I flew to Houston, and I got all the transcripts from those trials, which not many people would be thinking about doing that. But for me, as a trial lawyer, you know, I look at transcripts and file appeals. I'm in trial myself. I thought I thought the trials were fascinating because they. It was interesting how the lawyers, you know, jockeyed for position and how they were sort of deceptive in what they said so the other lawyer wouldn't find out and so uh i looked at those uh and i was even more convinced that i couldn't understand how this accident could have happened the way the way that uh the um the experts were saying and so i then went and decided you know what i need to i need to these, the trials, the, all the periodicals, all this stuff, it doesn't really get to the, and it's not the fault of the court system. When you're in a court system, you're a lawyer, you have a certain theory that you're trying to present. It's an adversarial system. The other side is presenting their side of it, and the idea is that the truth will meet in the middle, um, but it's not an absolute search for the truth. It's an absolute search for uh, proving the story you're trying to tell, which is may not be and as it turned out in the trials in Aladar's case the prosecution wanted to prove that Alton Stone did it. Alton Stone wanted to prove it was an accident and really the the truth of what actually happened never really came out. Uh, So after that I decided you know I I want to uh, look into it even more deeply by interviewing people and um you know, one of the things that I don't want I feel like, you know, I'm doing all the talking and you're doing all the listening.
0: I, I'm, I'm actually enthralled. So this is, is no problem at all. Uh, yeah, go ahead, please.
1: So what happened with Ali Dar's case was he hurt his, he hurt his leg. Uh, what, what the, what the public was told was that he kicked the door and broke his leg and sheared off these bolts on the bottom of the door. Uh, so within 30 days, uh, Lloyd's of London paid $36.5 in his mortality case. And then Golden Eagle, which had a $5 million policy, paid they, theirs three months later. And I think that the general public said, you know what, if somebody pays that much money, there had to have been a deep investigation to justify paying that amount of money. And people didn't really know the, what, you know, they, they heard it, the, the, the uh, horse had kicked the door, and, and that was... In the public eye, it ended with the payment of the insurance money because all that money was paid right, on a legitimate claim, it was thought. Um, and it wasn't until two years later that Bill Knack, who was secretary, it's biographer, came out with an article in Sports Illustrated that said, you know what? We've talked to some other vets, and they say breaking your leg, kicking the door is not a really uh, – it's not something they see. It's not something anybody's heard of. And we think Aldar was murdered for the insurance money. And with that, that started the public's interest in what really happened because Bill, Bill Knack is a, you know, he's, he's a genuine sports turf writer. And he has a lot of credibility. Yeah. And uh, so it was interesting that after that article came out within two weeks, the doctor who, who diagnosed, uh, Ali Dar's injury came out and explained how he thought the accident happened. And what's interesting is following the evolution of the the story of how Ali Dar got injured. It started out with he kicked the door. That's what all the press releases say. Uh, when you look at Lloyd's of London's reports, which I got from Tom Dixon, who was the investigator, and all this information is on my website. You can see it yourself. Um, there's no mention of our getting his foot caught in the door and twisting it and all that stuff. And so when Lloyd's paid the, the claim, and you look at what Lloyd's had, all they had was the horse kick the door. And the first thing you ask yourself, you ask yourself, is as if a horse is in the stall 10 o'clock at night by himself, why, why? in the world would he haul off with his rear feet, and kick the door, and break his own leg?
0: kicks so hard that he breaks right. his own leg. Right. Yeah. And that cannon
1: bone is a weight-bearing bone and according to the experts I talked to, it can withstand 7,000 pounds of pressure. Yeah.
0: And for folks uh, who aren't at home or maybe aren't familiar with where the cannon bone is located, uh think of it it's like your shin. It's like yeah. your 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 it's shin your knee and your ankles.
1: Yeah. Yep. So, what then happens after 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 the Sports Illustrated story is that uh Dr. Bramlage comes out and says, well, no, no, he didn't really kick the door. He actually kicked through the door, got his hoof outside the door, got it caught, struggled and broke it while he was, while his hoof was caught up in there. And the problem with that theory is that there's absolutely no evidence of that. So uh, when I went and interviewed Tom Dixon, he gave me the 10 pictures he took that night and the Mm -hmm. next day of the stall door. And the stall door is surrounded by cement blocks painted in devil's red which is the calumet's colors. And go on the website or look at the book and look at the pictures of the door and you'll see there's nothing. There's not a yeah. mark on that door anywhere. Now there are marks on the inside of the door. But uh, I talked to the groom, his groom at the time and I said, "You know, are those door what are those marks?" He said all those marks are from Aladar k- kicking the front door with his foot. When he wants a carrot or when he wants attention, none of those marks are rear foot kick marks. And so uh, I found the photographs, you know, if I was a lawyer and I was trying the case and I actually asked asked Tom Dixon, where are where are is the mark that you attribute to this broken leg? And he basically said, I, I don't know. Yeah, I went I went by what the, the vet said and the vet said that's what happened. So it's just interesting that here we look at Loy's records and they're paying on a door kick and then it evolves into more than that. When we get to the trial of the night watchman and the, and JT Lundy. And so, um, you would think if you, if you looked at the trial that this story about getting the the hoof caught was, was the the story all along. Right. Um, and yet when you look at the, the testimony of some of the people, uh, Sandy Hatfield, who was a stallion, uh, she was a worked Calumet, at this time said, uh, I never heard it that night. Um, and Dr. Bramley's report says nothing about how the accident happened at all. Just says, I arrived, he had a broken cannon bone, here's how we fixed it. That's it. Um, the The other two doctors, Dr. Baker and Dr. Rhodes, filled out reports and all their reports says, is how did the accident happen he kicked the stall doll star stall door slash wall so you know i'm not saying anybody did anything untoward or was deceptive or anything like that i'm just saying that um when you look at what lloyd's paid on it was a broken broken leg kicking the door that's what tom dixon wrote in his reports and then all of a sudden you get to the trial and it's a different story um you know, lawyers get involved. It's it, everybody. It's under the microscope now. Sure. And you know, the, the crazy thing about it is that Dr. Baker was helped with the, uh, you know, help with the surgery. Mm-hmm. And when he, so when you have a criminal trial, you go to the grand jury first, and you give testimony, and then you go to the trial. And so Dr. Baker comes to the trial uh, of the of the Night Watchman and says, "Hey, uh, uh, I think that you know he kicked the door and got his foot caught, and then the." the prosecutor says well that's not what you said in the grand jury you never said that in the grand jury you said he kicked the stall door and you made very you made it very clear that you had seen a case where that had happened before somebody kicked the stall door and you know i asked dr bramlage in his interview i said well you know if this is the story all along how is it that dr baker who was there with you during the surgery and you know that night and filled out all his forms didn't know anything about that theory when he testified before the grand jury. Right. And Bramley said, well, maybe he just didn't believe it. Maybe he thought the theory was, you know, which underlines the idea that this is a theory. It's not fact. Gotcha. And so.
0: so, Well, real quick, I'm going to get an ad read in, but I want to, uh, whenever we get back, I'd really like to to hear a little bit of the uh, why, you know, the, the financials behind why yeah. this seems even more suspicious. I, But before we get to that, let's talk about our good friends at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL playoffs. Uh, they're bringing an offer to help you make the playoffs electrifying. New customers can bet five bucks on any game and get 200 instantly in bonus bets. So download that DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use code SGP and get 5 bucks to get 200 instantly in bonus bets only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code SGP. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Visit www.1800gambler.net in New York. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. Uh, 21 plus age verifies by jurisdiction. Boyd in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash football for eligibility and deposit restrictions. Terms and responsible gaming resources. And we're also brought to you by our friends at Game Time. Uh, Game Time wants you to get the tickets without the stress. And when we say get the tickets, we're not just talking about sports. We're talking music. We're talking comedy. We're talking theater. Hey, you can maybe see... Mr. Fred Cray himself do a do a book reading or a signing or something. Just check out the Game Time app and see what's out there with these killer last minute ticket deals. So, snag the tickets without the stress of Game Time. Perfect for the playoffs. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use code CFBX for twenty dollars off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code CFBX for twenty dollars off. Download Game Time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guarantee. Okay, so. Fred kind of took us through what the the, you know the the physical evidence that doesn't quite add up in terms of you know we have conflicting reports from veterinarians and everything. It's more of Calumet's financial situation, uh, and, and the things that they have they go on, going on with their insurance and the insurance premiums that that make this really start to seem more suspicious than anything else because you can very clearly see a, a motive,
1: right? Yeah, exactly. So Calumet had, had, had been in financial tra- This Aldor was, uh, died in 1990 and that year he was the, uh, the greatest sire in the United States. Yep. And, you know, he's had Ali Sheba, uh, easy goer, a whole bunch of great sons and daughters. Um, but starting in the 88, 89, they started having, they continued to have financial difficulties because, J.T. Lundy's was spending lavish amounts of money on the farm. He, he bought Secreto and Mogambo and paid $50 million. Uh So I can't imagine paying $50 million on two horses. Those horses never made a, a penny.
0: Yeah. It's either one of them. Right. Uh,
1: so uh, imagine the context of, Al, of Alidar's injury when, you know, the, everybody comes to the farm that night on November 13th, 1990. Alidar is... Uh, breeding 100 times a year you know at 100 200,000 dollars a pop and to all outside appearances Calumet is doing great you know uh so you come in there and you think this has got to be an accident right. no one would kill a horse that's making this much income and the truth is that nobody really knew except for our uh the insiders at Calumet and and the bank what Calumet's actual financial condition was. And that's part of why uh, you can't blame the, the investigators and Dr. Bramlage and everything for assuming that this was an accident, because that's what you're coming into. You right. know, Calumet had a history of of uh, two Triple Crown winners and eight Kentucky Derby winners. And now Ali Dar was bringing up, you know, he was he was having all these great progeny. Um, and it wasn't until after uh, Calumet, after Alidar died, you know, six or eight months later, they had to declare bankruptcy that everybody learned, oh, my God, they're one hundred and twenty million dollars in debt. Right. And so what happened. Before November 13th, 1990, was that. What uh, the insurance company that held five million dollars of his his mortality insurance, Golden Eagle, Uh, wrote them a letter saying we're not going to renew our policy when it becomes when it's going to come due in December. So the first thing that you know is that if you don't do something before December, you'll lose $5 million. Right. The second thing that happens is that um, Calumet can't make its loan payments. So sometime in uh, October, First City National Bank of Houston, you know, puts all their loans together for 50, $50 million and said, look, if you don't make a payment on this in November or December, we have the right to foreclose on the farm. Uh, and so then when you talk to John Ward, who was the man who took over after Lundy quit April Fool's Day of uh, 1990. And, and so John Ward took over and when he took over, his thought was John Ward was, you know, he he has a farm right out there next to Keeneland. And uh, he walked past Calumet every day, and he wanted to bring it back. And he thought, you know what, if they only owe $60 million to the bank, uh, we can do it. But then when he got in there, he found out that Calumet hadn't, when he got in there in April or May, he found out that Calumet, the only bills they had paid were water and electricity. Right. Um, they hadn't paid they were having trouble paying their premiums to, on their insurance. And in fact, they hadn't paid their premiums on their, the insurance for Ali Dara and the other horses. Some of the premiums were paid by J.T. Lundy's sister, Kathy Jones.
0: And she was an insurance underwriter, is that correct? Right,
1: right. She was also the broker and, and and was in charge of all their insurance stuff. And she testified in the trials, and I actually interviewed her. And she had admitted that you know she was owed a couple million dollars for paying some of the premiums that were due that Calumet couldn't pay, And so what was astounding to me was that, think about your car insurance, you don't make your premium payments, but when you have an accident, they pay the claim, which is what happened in Alidar's case. They hadn't made the premium payments. And I asked Tom Dixon about it. And he said that all is based on the agrarian nature of Kentucky, where, you know, you don't make money until you bring your tobacco in and it dries. And so they, you know, they sort of this was sort of the way things were done. Uh, so. Then Wild Ride came out in 1994, which was a book by Anne Hagedorn, who uh, documented all of the, the deals, I mean, you're talking about 300 and some pay plus pages of all the deals that, that went on at Calumet and how they became.
0: So, some of them are just wild, just wild, they that, you, wild. that, that they would yeah. be al- allowed to happen in the first place.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, there was one case uh, where uh, Frank Chiak needed a million dollar insurance dedu- deduction for 1989. I can't remember if it was 89 or 88. And they manufactured that for him by, with the check cutting scheme. There was, and you know, one of the things that people don't really know is that, the bank actually got J.T. Lundy to take out a five million dollar loan. It's called the Cocoa Art Loan, hmm. in which he was supposedly, if if the loan went bad, that he would get the artwork and would be made whole. In the end, he got none of that. You know, it was crazy what 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 loans went on, and they 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 that was uh, put forth by the pop prosecutors in J.T. Lundy's and uh, Gary Matthews fraud case, and they were convicted of that. I mean, there was no way you could look at those transactions and say these are normal transactions. And, hey, you know, JT.
0: oh, I'm sorry. Please continue. And J.T.
1: Lundy, you know, he gave away breeding rights to Aladar. One of the things that that. Uh, uh, one of the things that was found out by uh, John Ward when he took over was that all, all these breeding rights were given away and that they they. They got the money in advance, so you would, say, come to me in 1989 and say, look, I want to breed a horse to Aladar every year until he dies, and I'm going to give you $2 million up front for that. And so you get – the great thing is that the, the farm gets that money up front, but the bad thing is is that J.T. Lundy doesn't parse it out over – he doesn't advertise it. He spends it all when they get it.
0: Right, and he just kind of mortgages his future, really, yes. with with by by giving out these lifetime rights as opposed to sticking to his his you know I can't remember how much he said the the breeding rights were per pop, but you know his per pop rate. Um,
1: and so by 1990, what happens is Aladar's not making enough money to uh, keep the farm afloat anymore because they've taken all this money in advance and he's given them out as gifts. I mean, he gave some of the people he worked for. He gave GX some breeding rights uh the people that worked under him got breeding rights it was just
0: uh it sounds like he almost gave them out like like you know gift gift certificates at christmas almost like that like here you go here's a here's a one breeding right for alidar
1: and and all the all the people around him that were getting these things loved him you know he passed away uh december 27th really jt Lundy did and i was looking last night at who the, some of the pallbearers were at his funeral, and the two that stand out are Peter Brandt, who is a horse racing guy, and uh, A.J. Foyt. Now, the funny thing about that is that uh, Peter Brandt was involved with J.T. Lundy uh, right around 1990 when this was going on. He was owed money for uh, some interest payments on horses that he had sold Calumet. And so J.T. Lundy decides to write a check it's supposed. Let's say it's supposed to be, as an example, sixty seven thousand dollars, and instead he writes it out for six hundred seventy thousand dollars. And when Peter Brandt gets that money, he obviously knows that you know this is the wrong amount. So he t- takes the amount that's the that's the difference between the right amount and the wrong amount, puts it in his personal account, and now there's a ten year lawsuit about this check and how who's supposed to whether the bank is going to be. Uh, Responsible for the amount that was wrongfully paid, JT Lundy, whether he wrote the wrong amount, and ha- how Peter Brandt's going to pay this back, and you know all that, and it right. takes ten years, okay? And uh, the bank ended up eating some of that money. And uh, when they asked the lady who wrote the check for Lundy to sign, she was equivocal about whether JT Lundy told her to write it for six hundred and seventy or sixty-seven. Which one? Which one was it? And then for AJ Foyt, AJ Foyt came in and Lundy took a horse that was supposed to be John Beach's horse, who was Aldar's trainer, and gave it to AJ Foyt and named it Foyt. And then uh Calumet bought in uh advertising on AJ's racing team. So they had these stickers, you know, on their on their, their sure,
0: on the, the shirt. flame retardant right. racing suits. Yeah. And yeah.
1: And so and and what's funny is uh, Calumet didn't pay the bill for AJ AJ Foyt's racing advertising and there was something about AJ Foyt having did, to spend Did they at time. least
0: supply the 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 patch or sticker on their own did they foot that bill
1: at least I don't I don't know but AJ Foyt had to take all those stickers off because they're embroidered on you know, yeah they're they're sewed on the yeah. shirt you know and 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 lundy also you know agreed to to pay money to special olympics you know Aldo, some aldor some aldor's money he never paid that in bankruptcy all those people got you know cents on the dollar right. so it's it's a sad tale of uh, uh, what i believe is uh, AJ, uh, jt lundy wanting to be a being the son of a of a, a rednecks tenant farmer saying to other people who are blue bloods I'm going to do what I want when I want better than anybody else. And I'm going to, I've got new money and I'm going to spend it and I'm going to be part of the racing elite. And as a result of him having the control of Alidar, you had to be polite to him if you wanted to breed your horses to him. So
0: JT JT Lundy is a wild character. Like just in, in terms of everything that he did in terms of mismanaging uh, Calumet, which I can say because it's, I mean, it's been pretty well proven. And also he's yes, gone to has. gone to jail for bank fraud. Yes. Uh, there, there's some wild bits of that, that I want to talk about. I After I get a word in from our good friends at Cut, Cut it's a peer-to-peer social betting platform that's U.S.-based and legal in 40 states. Peer-to-peer social betting is new and better way to bet. Bet directly against your friends or other users on sports, politics, pop culture, and events with verifiable outcomes, plus tons of fun. Uh, social features that give the feel of a betting social network. Cut offers lower VIG and fully customizable odds. Create your own bets. Cut handles the payment side of things so you never have to chase anyone down for money. Social features like group chats, betting leaderboards, head to head history, those are all out there. Plus, you can get cash back every single time you bet against your friends or other users. Reminder, the peer-to-peer social betting platform that's U.S.-based and legal in 40 states. Head to cut.com. That's K-U-T-T dot com. Use promo code SGPN for a 10% deposit bonus. And as always, uh, we're brought to you by our good friends at Underdog Fantasy. We have uh, free-to-play alongside fantasy players all season long. NFL, NBA, NHL, college basketball, and college football. Simply pick higher or lower on your favorite players' fantasy stats and cash in. So watch along, make your picks, and maybe make a little cash over on Underdog's Mobile app or website, underdogfantasy.com. dot com. Okay, we are back. We were discussing JT Lundy. We kind of talked about the the financial, uh, we'll say, impropriety that that was happening. How to do you me, like to be the, chasing him down
1: for your money? Oh, <laughs> like you just advertised. You he feels like he might down be. for money.
0: <laughs> right, right. That's good. T- good timing with that. He feels like he he would pull the uh, park around the corner and wait for a la- hope for a lazy repo man sort of uh
1: well, you know, I interviewed him. I went to his yeah. house and I uh, uh, was hoping that he would say, I mean, the truth about JT Lundy is, is that most people don't think that he killed Alidar. Sure. Uh, that he, 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 and it's clear from the way he talked about Alidar that he didn't love Alidar. He, he said, Oh, I can't wait for Alidar to be back breeding. I can't wait for him to be back at the farm breeding. Uh, and, you know, at the time in nine in 1990 the standard breeding number is 70 and alidar was doing 100 and probably more off the record Um, that's
0: that's the real wild part that he was possibly breeding alidar at night for cash
1: that's insane to me yes and i i actually talked to one of his grooms who was the groom there in uh, 1990 and he lived you know Let's say he lived forty-five minutes from forty-five minutes from the farm. He said I'd get called at nine o'clock to come out to the farm, nine o'clock at night, and I'd have to go, you know, to breed Alidar. Um, And so, uh, and what's really sad is in 1990, his groom Paul Pryor went to uh, J.T. Lundy in Calumet Management and said, "Listen, Alidar's getting sore in his back end, and he can't really—he's not really able to breed." And he's losing interest in breeding because he's being bred so much. Can you please, you know, slow it down a little bit? And the vet there, Linda Rhodes, said the same thing. Uh, And what was, what did they do? They fired Paul Fryer. Right. So, you know.
0: Yeah, it's. You know, it's what's really interesting to me also is and in regards to especially you kind of uh, comment on this uh, when you're going through the transcripts of the of the, uh, uh, you know, trials and everything, which, by the way, I, lo- I love the style in which you write kind of the trial bits, because honestly, I can kind of think of it as like watching a, a, a horse race. And you're like the race caller who's telling me, you know, this, you know, why didn't they? Oh, this person had to had to check. They're off their heels. They're in trouble. This yep. person's taking the yep. lead. Um. But it's, uh, you know, with the I was hoping to do that.
1: I was hoping to show uh, the average person who's not a trial lawyer how complicated it is, you know, how complicated that when you give an opening statement. You go, well, they left all this out.
0: Right. <laughs> you know I mean? right.
1: Why did they do that? And I try to explain all that in a way that makes sense. And that, you know, you go, wow, all this is going on underneath. And I don't you don't even see it unless you're the lawyer.
0: So something that you kind of just just you know spoke about well first of all let's with the with alidar uh let me get to this first the what really was interesting to me with the trials also was that during the trial it seemed like there there was the move of let's uh discredit the the character of the of the uh of the victim in this case yes, with absolutely. alidar yeah, absolutely and, and see it's it's like you could see with uh you see it sometimes with like you know issues with like police brutality or anything. Yeah. It's like the first thing that happens is the the police department discredits the the victim itself. Yeah. Uh, I I thought that was the was really interesting. Do you think that that? I mean, I guess you can say it didn't necessarily pay off for them to try that tactic uh, because people still went to jail for for fraud. Well, I
1: think the idea was in. Uh, for the defense in these cases was that the more fiery and out of control Al Ali Dar was, the more likely it was he kicked his stall door. Um and so they tried to, that was the the narrative that they were that, that, that the defense had to put on. And uh Dr. Baker really took it to the next level when he was testifying about Ali Dar. And what was interesting to me and you know was that uh the grooms were there, and so was the night watchman who was with him all the time. And uh, their testimony was the most credible because they were with Alidar all the time. And so uh, the problem was is that the, 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 the veterinarians were seeing Ali Dar for the first time when he's hurt. And they don't know really what he's like other than that. And everybody was kind of incensed that. That was how they, they were, you know, they were uh, judging his character was by veterinarians who, you know, Dr. Bramlich, I don't think had ever seen him before. And he's saying, right. well, he's this, this, and this. And Dr. Bramlage went so far as to blame Alidar for uh, spoiling his surgery, you know. And uh, oh, when I talked to John Veach about it, he was, John Veach was angry about it. And he said, look, you know, he doesn't know Alidar. He's seeing him, you know, in with a mortal injury and he's making judgments about him. Uh, but he doesn't really know the horse and he really does, he has no business doing that. Um, so my thought was that if if. The prosecutor had known a little bit more about horses and how and had brought this up and had cross-examined and said, well, Dr. Bramlage, how many times have you actually seen Dar? And would you say that most horses, when they see a vet, Go, oh boy, I can't wait to get a shot. I can't wait to right. get a tube put down my throat. I can't wait to have, you know, these indignities put on me. Um, anybody who has a dog that wants that takes him to the vet knows exactly what I'm talking about.
0: Well, if you not. come and ring my doorbell two days in a row and punch me in the face <laughs> each time I open the door, you better believe on the third day I'm at least going to have something to say about it.
1: Yeah, so... You know, that was part of the of the of the of the defense uh, in the case that, you know, I I felt like I had to even this, even it up a little bit with testimony from the grooms uh, to testify about what you know, he wasn't that kind of horse. He wasn't the kind of horse and nobody yet has has ever given me a a plausible explanation for why any horse, let alone Ali Dar, who was not a a rear foot kicker, he was a front pump you know kicking the door thing uh at 10 o'clock at night would all of a sudden just haul off and kick his stall door now yep. um dr bramley tried to give this traction by saying well he was just feeling good uh which was total speculation and, and not based on any fact it was just sure you know, out there to lundy said it was because he and a firm were getting you know you know were are bickering against each other and when i asked a firm's groom about that he said look that would never happen they can't see each other you know they're they're between stalls, you can't see out. Uh, I've never seen it happen. I I don't believe that. So that's a problem for the for that theory throughout the book, and uh, I felt like you know it was kind of like defamation. Of right. How are, you know? Yeah. You uh, run into.
0: Oh, I was gonna say you run into like a couple of things that I really kind of ring true through even for like people who are handicappers or people who like myself who make money on the horse racing industry, which is uh, I've heard before that the Appalachians were settled by uh, the Scotch-Irish who are a very clannish people. And because of that, they're very wary of talking to to outsiders and very wary of, of people who aren't their own, and therefore you have a lot of nepotism. in, in horse racing. You do. Uh, and so do you feel like when you were talking to these people that a lot of the times that you maybe couldn't get where you wanted to go because, uh, there was the, the implication that they, or sorry, not the implication, but, uh, the, the feeling that they might be implicating family, uh, in, into something. Uh,
1: well, I wouldn't say that. I would say that, uh, the people who were, who were the result of nepotism would never talk. So, uh, Lundy hired uh, Susan McGee and Janice Hines, and they were all, had to know what was going on with this this thing in some way. And I say that for two reasons, uh, which I think are really, when people think about, well, you know, what made you think that this was, who, how could you prove that this was not an accident? I mean, the first thing is, is that somebody in a Calumet Crown Vic a week before Aladar got hurt went up to the regular night watchman whose name was Cowboy Kip and said, hey, we think you're getting burned out. You need to take the night off. And Cowboy Kip's like, wow, I just took a vacation. I'm really not burned out. I've worked here for five years. Why are you saying this now? And he said, nah, I don't want to do it. And they said, well, we we think you need to take it. And he took that, and rightfully so, as not a suggestion, but you're taking the night off. And so how coincidental is it that a week before Ali Dar is hurt, they tell the night watchman to take that night off, and he does. Mm-hmm. And he was in the Calumet Crown Vic, which means you'd have to get keys to the Crown, Calumet Crown Vic, and somebody would have to know that you got the keys for the Crown Vic, right. and were driving it around. And Cowboy Kip testified, as you know, in court, that he'd seen the guy around the, the, uh, the office before. Now he couldn't identify who it was, and the FBI gave him a photo array, and he, he really never did see him. But Cowboy Kip had nothing to gain by this. He was, you know, he was the night watchman. He loved Aladar, uh, was with him every night, you know. So that's the first thing. The first thing is why, if this is an accident, how coincidental is that, and how could Calumet Management not know that? Yeah. And this, you know, and the second thing is when Terry McVeigh went to take pictures of the stall. Uh, he's the uh, guy from Golden Eagle. The day after Al- Ali Dar was hurt, they wouldn't let him in, in to the to the to take pictures, and so he had to call his boss, who was on the West Coast, and his boss had to call Calumet and the insurance agent and say, "Look, if you don't let him in, we're not going to pay." And when McVeigh gets in there, the stalls completely sanitized. The bracket that's broken is reinstalled. The bolts have been thrown out, um, and this happens while he's not let in. So, you know these are these these can't be coincidences that you you say well that's just a coincidence. Uh, right. These you know these decisions these two decisions about what was going on with uh, letting uh, Terry McVeigh in and telling the night watchman to take the night off have to involve Calumet's management.
0: You can only picture I I picture Joe Pesci uh being the person who tells it because it's it's very much out of like goodfellas or something the whole someone you don't know shows up in a crown vic and tells you hey maybe you take the night off like that is that is wild
1: well one person said it sounded like a martin scorsese sort of thing
0: oh yeah totally Totally. All right. Got to get one last word in from our sponsors, the good nerds of Hall of Fame Bets. Win bigger by betting smarter this NFL season with Hall of Fame Bets, the sports betting analytics platform for parlays, player props, and game lines. Research every NFL, NBA, and soccer bet with historical stats and data. Enter any parlay idea in the Hall of Fame Bets revolutionary parlay optimizer tool to get hit rates broken down by leg as well as an expected probability for the entire parlay. Sort all players by hit rate for any bet to learn which players are hot and which picks have value. Stop betting in the dark and join over 30,000 users. Researching with Hall of Fame Bets, Craft more intelligent data driven parlays down with the Hall of Fame bets app or visit hofbets.com Use code SGPN. That's Sam Golf Pop in November to get 50% off your first month today. Start researching, start winning with Hall of Fame Bets. Now let's let's talk about Alton Stone because I think the Alton Stone is very much just a a tragic, tragic character uh in this in this whole in this this whole saga here because uh, he's the only one that ever saw any type of charge due to the fact uh, uh you know even stemming from alidar's death it's the the yes. only thing that's even remotely connected and it's you know that he had given a false statement to the grand jury regarding you know if he the night that that alidar was was injured. Yeah. Uh what what was your take on Alton Stone? Because you can really do nothing but kind of feel sorry for him because it feels like he's paying like a 30 year premium for for one bad decision, essentially.
1: Well it's interesting. Uh Alton Stone, I actually talked to him after I wrote the book. Uh you know, uh and I went out to visit him. Uh and I said to him, Hey, uh I'm writing a book. I had the manuscript at that time. And I said, uh this book is going to exonerate you. It's going to say, you know, you didn't really have anything to do with it. I said, uh, and I want you to know that, you know, and because his life was really ruined by this in, in the sense that he had to go to jail for, I think, I I think it was, you know, six months or something. I have the information here somewhere.
0: Yeah. Still Uh, six months in in, any jail sucks. Yeah. So,
1: so Lundy got 54 months. Uh, Matthews got 21 months those were both for bank fraud and Stone got five months and his you could tell the judge felt sorry for him because even the defense didn't ask for five months the the judge said you know and you know here's a guy who um he's a a minimum wage guy you know he's working as as a broodmare on the broodmare crew at Calumet and he's asked to fill in for all for uh, cowboy kip this night and the problem with him is that he has this I mean, it happened to me cuz i i asked him some questions about you know whether Aladar had a halter on that night i mean do they take the halters off or do they leave them on because if if he had a halter on then that means somebody had to be come there and put it on him to right. get control of him right and he didn't really remember but what what he has a tendency to do is say If you say, well, you know, this this happened, he'd say, well, you know, maybe he did have a halter on, you know. And so instead of saying, I don't know, he goes along with what you're suggesting. He's very suggestible in terms of what he might say. And so if he would have just said, I don't know, and stopped, he would have been okay. But um, as and, you know, he's questioned by the grand jury and then he was questioned by uh, the FBI agent three different times and he gave three different stories, and he gave really particular specific information that was wrong. So like he'd say, well, who who was there when you said this? Well, uh, you know, so-and-so was there, and then so-and-so wasn't even working there at the time. So the prosecutors probably rightfully thought he's covering up because he's given these three separate stories. Uh, But then the other side of it is that he never, he never took a deal, and the only reason they arrested him was because they wanted him, they thought he was there at the time, and that he would know what actually happened, whether it was Lundy or somebody else. And so they give make a deal or give up anybody, and he had to go to trial. And the interesting part about it is that when it's all said and done, and you look at the evidence presented, it was very weak. It was that he had said that he was at the stallion barn at 10 o'clock when he gave his statement. He lied about a bunch of other stuff that really doesn't make any difference. And based on uh, the uh, opinion of uh, one of the veterinarians, the incident happened at 10 o'clock. So he admits he's there. And according to the vet, it must have happened around 10 o'clock. And there was a third witness named Keith Hiley who said he saw him. He saw Alton Stone leaving, the lights were on, um, and it it, it inferred that he must have been there, done something before Keith Hiley got there. Right. Uh, So, you know, uh, when I asked the FBI agent after, you know, 30 years, I said, listen, you know, it's now now 30 years later, you've looked at all the evidence, you've looked at what happened. Is it possible that, that Alton Stone didn't know anything? He said, yeah, it is. And when I talked to Alton, uh, when I was writing the book and I, even when I, you know, when I, you know, I talked to him on the phone, I believed him when he said, I don't know what happened that night. I loved Aladar. I would, he was my bread and butter. Why would I hurt that horse? Right. Um, and when I talked to him, you know, in the last year, um, you know, he's, he's a guy who he's not real well educated and he unfortunately just didn't know when to say, I don't know. And the interesting thing that I found was, you know, as a lawyer, you always want to hear what guys say right afterwards before anybody else talks to them. I mean, are you going to believe somebody who talks to his lawyer and then talks to you? Or are you going to believe the guy who at the scene of the accident says whatever he says? Right. So I talked to um, Michael Coulter, who was friends brought up with Alton Stone and was there that morning. And so I said to him, what did Alton Stone tell you that morning? About how come he was not there when the incident happened. And he said, Well, he told me he went off premises to eat. And that to me is what he what actually happened. Because here he is that morning, before anybody talks to him, he's talking to his friend who has been brought up with. And his friend says, Well, what happened? And he says, Well, I went off the premises to eat, and when I got back, Alador was hurt. And that explains why all these stories get made up, because if he tells Cal you met that, he'll be fired. You're right. not supposed to go off premises to eat. Uh, but the, the the bald truth is is that Calumet had structured things so that there was nobody in the stallion barn when the when when the night watchman made his round. So the night watchman had to leave the horses alone for forty five minutes to an hour, three times a night because Calumet could not afford to pay a minimum wage to a guy to just sit in the stallion barn. They had done that before. They had done that the year before this happened but they were in such financial turmoil that they couldn't afford that so they stopped doing that. And so now, you know whether he was off eating or whether he was doing his rounds, the horses were still going to be left alone.
0: Right. So when you look through the book, I mean it it by you know it definitely gets to the point where I at least for me I started to feel like if anyone were to injure Dar, that it's it's most definitely the bank who has the most the most to gain from I it. I agree 100%. Uh, do do you believe that it's possible that maybe while JT Lundy wasn't necessarily the most like savory character and especially in terms of how he managed Calumet's finances, that maybe he just didn't know something was going to going to happen? No, I don't I don't
1: think he didn't know because of the two things I said. I think if somebody got in the crown vic and told the night watchman to take the night off, I think he had to know that. I think the just the refusal to let Terry Terry McVeigh in. Uh, to take pictures and then getting rid of all the evidence he would have had to the management would have had to know those two things. So I believe that he knew it was going to happen. He didn't want it to happen. But he had to go along with it. Otherwise, and the, the reason I say that is that's my opinion, is because. That would have to be the case for him to fix all the evidence at, for, for Terry McVeigh to come in. Right. Right. He would have to have said to, because he when I interviewed everybody. Stanley Brown, who repaired it, mm-hmm. said that he was told by farm management, was and he didn't know whether it was J.T. Lundy or Susan McGee, to fix it that morning at 9 o'clock. And there was no reason to fix it at 9 o'clock. Nobody was going in that stall. Right. There was no need. And, and here you have Aladar, you know, a mortal injury. He's going into surgery. And you're going to tell, tell the night. And they didn't just tell the, just anybody to fix it. They told the guy who's the head of maintenance at Calumet. He had all these guys underneath him. He had a fence crew. He had a lawn crew. He had all these paint crew. They got the main guy in charge of all maintenance and called him into the office at 9 o'clock and said, fix this now. So what I'm saying is I don't think that, I mean, if he didn't know, he then knew when that when, when that sure. he was told to do that. He had to know then. So he, he had to have helped cover it up somehow, I think.
0: Um, you know, I I just from reading about the banker himself, I can't. I, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. It's like C Hack or Chi Hack. Okay, G-Hack. uh, Frank C Hack. Uh, when I was reading about Frank C Hack and especially like his his demeanor, whenever people were talking to him in prison, I don't think I could have possibly imagined a more punchable face than <laughs> than Fra- Frank C Hack. Uh, does he? I, I can't remember if you had any direct dealings with him or not. If so, is as he? I did. Sly- I called him on the
1: phone. I called him on the phone and I said, "Frank, uh, are you the Frank Chiak that was involved with First City National Bank?" And he said, "Well, yeah, long time." He really wanted to act like he didn't know anything, but in the end, he he uh, he said, uh, "Listen," I, and I asked him directly. I said, "Did you did did you know anything about Aladar getting killed for insurance money? Uh, was that ever just did you ever discuss that with London?" He said, "Absolutely not." Because I will only do what's in the bank's interest. The problem is, is killing Alidar was in the bank's it was best
0: interest. 100% the they bank's the interest. One,
1: what people don't understand is the checks that were written from Alidar's death didn't go to Calumet. They went to First City National Bank. And First City National Bank knew all of the creditors. They knew that they were $120 million in debt. And they knew they were owed $50 million. And they knew that if they waited for bankruptcy... They would get cents on the dollar of that 50 million. And why not take the money from Ali Dar's insurance and get that now? And, and then they'll be ahead of all the more than all the creditors. And here's another thing that, that, that you may not know is that, you know, he was convicted twice of plundering First City National Bank, which was what he was in the in the jail for. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that is that he had tens of millions of he had uh, many million dollars of his own money in First City National Bank. Because he was a, a board member and also, you know, uh, somebody who uh, was in charge. Of, this is how they got all their banks' loans approved, was he was an insider. And they were essentially paying him off with favors to get their bank loans not looked at. So when they got their new bank loan, nobody called their previous, the previous people. Nobody vetted the loan. Frank Chiak signed off on it, and nobody looked at it, and that's how they got their loans. So, and Frank Chiak had a bodyguard. And uh, I've been trying to find him. I'm still trying to find him because John Veach said to me, hey, man, have you ever talked to the bodyguard? He had a really scary bodyguard. And the bodyguard was convicted when Frank Chiak was convicted, too. His name was Merced Cantu. And uh, he went to trial with Frank Chiak in a previous case, and he went to jail also. Uh, so my thought was maybe the bodyguard knows something. Sure. So I'm still on lookout for somebody to come forward. People have come forward, but I haven't really gotten anything that's really uh, actionable.
0: So, I mean, honestly, if this is something as you you know the the evidence kind of tends to point to that that there wasn't an accident, that something has happened to uh, Alidar that was planned. Um, what's what's the recourse that that someone can get at this point? Like, is there a statute of limitations for like yes. an animal? Multi charge,
1: yes, yes. There's nothing anything anything that can be done. In fact, uh, one of the reasons that they didn't charge uh Lundy with any kind of uh, issue with Ali Dar was because the statute of limitations has ru- had run on everything except bank fraud, and so that's what they got him for.
0: And that's the the only way that they could really kind of work in Ali Dar was to you know kind of use it kind of. Suggests that it was more than something in the in the sentencing I believe right, to, right. so what happened get, was in
1: the sentencing they hired george pratt to come in and say you know that the, the physics don't add up that this horse could not generate enough force to break those uh, bolts um and i thought it, w- it would have been a good argument if the bolts hadn't been corroded and yeah. they never really went back and covered that pro- that properly
0: I I gotta ask: Has anyone approached you to make like a a, tr- a true crime docu series or anything out of this? Yes, yes
1: they have. But you know, as all it, well, all we've had so far is a lot of talk and, and discussion, but we haven't had any real concrete. Uh, you know, I've had people inquire about movie rights. I've had people inquire about documentaries. Um, we'll see what happens. I, you know, it, it it to me, this book has been more successful than I ever imagined it would be. I wrote this book for Aladar. One of my friends, Kim Wickens, who wrote Lexington, of the book, said, you know, this book is really a love story between you and Aladar. And she's right. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I hadn't thought of that, but it's true. And uh, I wanted to write a book just about him because he was always second place. All, you know, if You said Alidar, everybody said, oh, you came in second. But he had a full life. He had a personality. He, the, the, the people around him loved him. And I wanted to uh, write a book just about him, uh, not about the rivalry and all that stuff, but that would be forever in the Library of Congress. That that would stand for his life.
0: Yeah, let let him be first place, and you know, in in this one, in the book. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's I uh, think people
1: know more now. In this book, you get to know more about uh, Dar than you ever knew about Affirmed. And yeah, I will that's, say that, that's although, sure. although Ali Dar lost on the track he uh, won by a far greater margin in the breeding stead against the firm.
0: That's, that's very true. And maybe even still had even more for cash uh, with the, uh, with his tally, which is still, <laughs> I, I bring it up again because it is absolutely insane to me. Yeah. I just, with the the story, it reminds me of something that I would see on HBO minus a yeah. sex cult. Since there's no right. sex cult, it's the only, th- right, the only right. thing that's keeping it from being a, uh, right. a true HBO production. Uh so I guess at the end of the day, statute of limitations is, has passed. What does what does justice for Alidar look like to you?
1: It looks like to me, uh, I mean, the ultimate great thing would be if somebody came forward and said, hey, this is what happened. Uh, if that doesn't happen, and it probably won't. Uh, then just the book being published, the book um, being successful. I mean, it's number one on Amazon today in horse racing. Um, the book was given was uh, was given uh, by Kirkus Reviews, one of the top 100 books of 2023. Um, and the other thing is, is that, that when you read the book, you're able to give your own verdict. So at the end of the book, you know, you can go on my website and file a verdict form on what you right. believe the, the evidence shows. And I, I have close to 300 verdicts, and it's uh, 299 to 1.
0: 299. That is... Fantastic, uh, Fred! I, I just got to say thank you so much for for coming on and agreeing to speak. You can tell the the passion that you had that uh, you know this is definitely a passion project. Yes, yes. for you I and everything. Yeah, and you're even you're doing a podcast yourself, the the yes. Broken Podcast. Do You want to let folks know where they can they can find that and uh, Well, that. I,
1: you can get it wherever podcasts are. You get your podcast by just typing in Alidar and uh, Fred Cray. Um, the podcast is really interesting it was professionally produced uh it's got music it's got some of the what's really cool and it's kind of like i say it's kind of like closing your eyes and watching a movie because you hear the sound you get to hear some of his race calls you know uh in the background you get to hear you get to hear the fbi guy say you know what i don't know if, if uh if uh alton stone was did anything or not and alton stone is on the podcast uh, when I when I talk to him, I and mean, that's a great thing about a podcast is even after the book is written, if somebody talks to you oh, and there is a great story on the podcast about Alidar and Mrs. Markey and the limousine. You have just got to hear that story. The guy was a groom when Alidar first came to, to, uh, to uh, Calumet. And Mrs. Markey drove up to this guy and said, um, you know, I want to see my horse. And this guy says, this is his first week there. And so he goes, OK. And he goes and gets Ali Darn. He brings him about 30 feet from the limousine. And she says, here's 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 the horse. And she says, no, no, bring him closer. So he brings her 10 feet to the, from the, the limousine. And she goes, no, 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 no. Bring him over to the window. Now, the groom is saying this is a terrible idea. This is a huge horse. He's getting near your limousine. You're in the seat there. The window's down. And the way he you got to hear him say, I'm not doing I'm not doing it justice. But he says, I, I'm thinking about the blood horse the next day saying, uh, Mark, he loses fingers in, in bizarre horse accident, you know, in limousine. <laughs> and he's 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 thinking about should he obey her and bring her over or tell his boss, I didn't obey the owner of Calumet and said I wouldn't bring him over to the, to the limousine. So he decides he's, there's nobody around. So he goes, all right, I'll bring him over.' So he brings Alidar over to the window. And he's hoping, okay, this is going to go okay. And what does Mrs. Markey do? She takes out her handkerchief and she waves it in front of the horse. And Aladar snatches it out of her fingers. <laughs> and the groom is going, oh my God, she's going to lose her fingers because there are guys on the farm that lose their fingers. Mm-hmm. Alden Stone got his, his his finger bit off, not by Aladar, but by, I think it was Capote. Anyway, now it's a disaster. He's Now the horse has this... Mrs. this multi billionaire Mrs. Markey's hanky in his mouth and he's got to get it out. What's he gonna do with it? And so so he he grabs it, he goes into her you know, saliva and you know and he doesn't he don't want to give it back to her. But he does one of those expensive handkerchiefs, you know. So the he throws it to him. <laughs> and that that story is just—I would have never heard that story if I had it in my podcast, right? But you, I. Well, what's Dr. Bramledge like? You know, you read read about him in the book. Now you can hear you can hear how he talks, and you can hear how you know what, what how dominant he is in the in the conversation. And you know, there's Paul Pryor on the podcast. The time before the time. There's a uh, Michael Cole groom at the time uh, who talks about what Alton stone told him. It's, it's fabulous. I, I, you know, I was not a podcast guy. I'm a tech guy. Like I told you, I lie the way your uh, your wolf is beautiful.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you.
1: I, I want to talk to you about that off the record later. Um, but uh, it's a podcast of that kind after you read the book it gives you i've had people say wow you know having heard that person i now have a different take on how they what their credibility is
0: you know it's what's funny uh, it's something that i i talk about in horse racing uh which is uh you get the racing form you see these trainers names you see these jockeys names it's not like they have like a uh, you know a glossy press shot of their head headshot right. or anything of what they look like so you always get to make up what these guys look like before you yeah. actually see them and i'll tell you what when you make up what dale romans looks like in your head it, dale romans does not look a lot like the dale romans that you created uh in your in your own mind so that's uh i i need to google and start putting faces uh, uh to these to these names a little bit
1: well what's interesting just want to last a little bit here because i know we're running over um I'm going to have a trailer made for my book and I'm I'm talking to the guy about it. And he said, and I never thought of this, but he said, you know, when you're, when you're doing a trailer, a lot of people don't want to show the faces of the people that are involved because when you read the book, it spoils the person's imaginary imaginary idea of what the person looks like. Right. And I said, yeah, but I have the actual photos of the, of the real people. Right. You know, like I have a picture of Tom Dixon. I have a picture of Terry McVeigh. I have a picture of JT. I have all these pictures, you know, and I didn't really describe them in the book a lot, um, but uh, that's something that we'll have to decide. You know, how much are we going to show of that? But it could make it real. You know, I, I have a I have a real good idea for the trailer, and I think it'll be fun.
0: Well, Fred, I can't thank you enough for for stopping by the show and and talking so in, you know in depth. I, I this was even more than I thought than I you know hoped to get. Like so, I am, Thank you so much for for <laughs> Well, coming thanks in. for having me.
1: I mean, I, I like to, I always like to, I like people to meet the horse. I'd like right. people to meet the horse and get to know the horse in a way that's more than oh, you know, I feel bad he came in second to Aladar. I interviewed Steve Coffin for the book. We're going to talk about the Belmont and how Aladar almost won the Belmont. And how Steve Cawthon through some, in-
0: all right, uh, Fred, where where can people find the book? I I know it's on Amazon. Uh, you it's like on it, Amazon, you mentioned- it's out on
1: ebook, audiobook, book, uh, paperback, hardback. Uh, if you go on Amazon, you can find it. You can find it at Barnes and Noble. Um, you know, and you can order it from any bookstore. I mean, they don't they don't carry it, but if you went to the bookstore and said, "Look, I want to get this book," they, they could order it for you you know i i've, I've uh, i think it's a I've, joseph beth bookstore because they they asked me to sell it there because that's lexington it's got a lot of horse people and i will be doing a, a talk at Keeneland on february 21st uh, at the Keeneland library oh wow that's books.
0: that's remarkable uh, that's uh, that if you're in the the lexington area get, make sure to to check that out and i you know i I've never had a book club on this show split second decision. I've just decided yeah. I'm starting one. This is, this one gets the, the Wolfie's book clubs uh, seal of approval. Uh, okay. Cause I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I'm a, I'm a big reader of nonfiction and just the way, the way you still storytell uh, to give it kind of a, a, f- not necessarily a fiction feeling, but it to keep it from being just, you know, dry facts. Like it's, yeah. it's very elegantly written and uh, I, I nice. I'm a big fan. So uh guys, that's gonna do it. This that is a wrap for the week here at the Notorious OTV. Big thanks to Alexa Zepp for dropping by. Big thanks to Clint Bradbury for dropping by, and the biggest thanks to you, sir, Mr. Fred, or sorry, Fred uh, M. Cray for for dropping by and for uh, talking about his fantastic book. We will catch you next week. I'm sure we'll be talking more about horses yeah. running in
1: circles. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm to have to ask you, you know, some some hot tips.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, oh I've got <laughs> I've got the hottest tips. Uh, that's what know. they say. They're lukewarm, lukewarmish tips. Uh, all right, that's gonna do it for us. We will catch you next time on more Victoria So TV brought to you by the Sports Gambling Podcast Network.